Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and we are on your smart speaker. Coming up, unbelievable scenes witnessed in the House of Commons. The mother of all parliaments has been sent into an absolute meltdown over the Gaza ceasefire vote. What on earth is going on in the House of Commons? We're going to find out. Plus, weapons of mass consumption. President Putin's just signed off plans to launch a war on British fish and chips, scrapping a 68-year-old treaty which allows our trawlers to catch Russian cod. Swines. An outrage over plans to house migrants in a tiny Cumbrian town grappling with a housing shortage. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's all happening tonight. We're bringing in the latest from a whole raft of huge stories. We'll be hearing from angry locals in Cumbria whose tiny town is being ordered to house 40 migrants. They're fighting back against the Home Office. I'll be revealing the terrifying dossier of crime committed by just one asylum seeker from Iraq over a two-year period. A legal bundle of 100 pages of offences was found on a street in Middlesbrough, and still we cannot deport him. Then... We're going to give you proof that the net zero green crusade is going to cost us all gazillions in tax. And finally, I'll be asking this question. Haven't our bloody MPs got anything better to do than talk about Gaza all bleeding day? This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Get ready for a whirlwind. Now, let's begin with the chaotic scenes in the Commons this evening. The government and the SNP walked out of the chamber, leaving the Labour Party's amendment calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza to pass without a vote. It's been a day of counterclaim, it's been a day of accusation, it's been a day of apology, it's been a day of absolute and utter embarrassment for me as far as our parliament is concerned. Let's talk now to Talk TV's political correspondent, Alicia Fitzgerald, who's been witnessing it all down there today for us in Westminster. Alicia, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. What on earth is going on now? Well, as you said, Mike, what on earth is going on in the House of Commons? And I think that has never been more true than today. It has been absolutely beyond chaotic. And I think this is the first time that you'll see very few people stood behind me here in Central Lobby, just a few metres away from the debate chamber. So what happened just earlier, the SNP and some Conservative MPs exiting the chamber pretty much in protest against Sir Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker, for, and that was because of his big decision to, to discuss that Labour amendment uh, to the SNP's big motion. So SNP uh, MPs all exiting the chamber, Tories as well, which meant that kind of by default the Labour amendment ended up passing. So lots of really big question marks over that and just exactly why that's happened. What does that mean for the rest of the day? Well, the debate has now totally finished. All MPs have ended this discussion and that is the end of that for today. But the thing is, is now Sir Lindsay Hall has apologised. He stood up in the House of Commons, really apologised to everyone for, for basically what happened, saying that it was never his intention for all of this to blow up in the way that it did. SNP uh, figures really pressuring him to try and reintroduce this debate back into another point, maybe next week, for example, so that the SNP have a chance to debate the topic that they really wanted to have a chance to today. Right. So it looks as though Sir Lindsay Hoyle, and we're going to watch him in a moment, has apologised for basically cocking up the whole thing. The Labour amendment should never have been allowed to, to come into the fray. Uh, the Tory party Conservative government amendment should have been the one that was allowed the SNP are upset about everything that's happened as well. And now everyone's calling for Sir Lindsay Hoyle as uh, head by the looks of it. But let's have a look at how he apologised um, just a little while ago. And I've tried to do... I have tried to do what I thought was the right thing for all sides of this house. I thought I was doing the right thing and the best thing. And I regret it and I apologise for how it's ended up. I do take responsibility for my actions, and that's why I want to meet 
and that's why I want to meet with the key players who have been involved. I mean, incredible scenes. And so many people now saying that, uh, that it looks as though that Hoyle was kind of leaned upon by the Labour Party. The Labour Party denied that he was leaned upon. The inference being that if they become the next government, he might not have a job if he doesn't do what they say. Meanwhile, accusations about Labour Party being leaned upon by their Muslim um, sort of voters in various different parts of the country who want a ceasefire. The wording I understand now that's passed is a humanitarian ceasefire is demanded uh, by the British Parliament. It's really, really interesting because earlier today we were kind of in a situation where for the first time the SNP, the Conservatives and the Labour Party were all pretty much calling for the same thing, just in slightly different words. For the first time, all three of them calling for a ceasefire. And we finished the day with probably perhaps one of the most divided days in Parliament of the year so far. So pretty much very counterintuitive to what the day uh, could have turned out to be if, if things had gone down differently. Lindsay Hall, a really kind of passionate and emotional apology in, in the House of Commons there. But then Stephen Flynn, the leader of the SNP in Westminster, kind of having none of it, he said that the Speaker's position was totally intolerable. And right. then, as you mentioned, Mike, we've got all these accusations of what did or did not happen before that. So a lot to, a lot to dig out yeah. over the next few days, for sure, to work out what exactly happened today. So what happens when they all come back tomorrow? Do they have another debate or do they all sit around wondering whether Lindsay Hoyle's um, neck should be on the line? How, how does it all work from here? Well, so the SNP are really pressuring uh, the Speaker and the government whips and the clerks and everyone who decides uh, the, the kind of order of parliamentary procedure to, to reintroduce this debate back to Parliament so that the SNP have their time to actually focus on what the SNP wanted to do. All of the SNP are saying that today became a Labour day rather than a day for the party whose opposition day debate it actually was. So that was where the pressure is coming from. I think what will happen next is that Lindsay Hoyle, as he promised in his apology, will try and have those conversations with the leaders of each parties, with the chief whips across the chamber and try and kind of get some common ground and discuss what they want to try and kind of make up for that mistake that he says he made earlier today. Yeah, absolutely incredible stuff. Well, Alicia, hopefully you won't have to stay there all night, but you wouldn't be surprised, would you, if suddenly somebody barricaded themselves in their office and said, I'm not coming out you until wouldn't. there's a ceasefire in Gaza, because it's all we care about. Alicia, thank you very much indeed. Alicia Fitzgerald there, the uh, uh, Talk TV uh, political correspondent, doing great jobs down there in Westminster, where it's absolute and utter chaos. I'm joined now by former Labour advisor Paul Richards and former Conservative MP uh, Louise Mensch, uh, who's over in the United States of America. Louise, let me come to you first, if I can, only because I wonder whether you've ever seen anything like this. I mean, you were in Parliament a few years back. I mean, it's, it seems like they've got nothing else to think about apart from a ceasefire in Gaza. Well, I, unfortunately, I have seen scenes rather like this because John Burko was the speaker yes. when I was in Parliament and he put his thumb on the scale a lot of times. Now, I do just quickly want to say that I think Lindsay Hoyle is an excellent speaker. This is a rare cock-up by him, as you put it, but it definitely is a cock-up. Uh, your viewers may... If I was translating this into normal people speak, I'd say it's a bit like Monty Python, where everybody sits around and goes, it's the Judean people's front yeah. versus the people's front of Judea. Yes. Uh, you had three motions that are essentially the same, everybody calling for a form of a ceasefire. The reason that it's all gone slightly pear-shaped is that Lindsay Hoyle decided to take away the SNP's big moment, it was their opposition day, and do Labour a favour. How did he do Labour a favour? He let the MPs vote on Labour's motion, which if he hadn't have allowed that as a possibility, 
the Labour Party MPs would have been faced with an SNP motion and a Tory motion. They probably would have voted for the SNP motion, meaning a rebellion against Keir Starmer. So the charge against Lindsay is you helped Keir Starmer out of a jam. You made sure there wasn't a Labour rebellion. Frankly, I can kind of understand why the SNP are upset. He did take away their big day. On the other hand, I don't think the British public are going to be very impressed by watching a bunch of grown men and women fight about the precise wording of something everybody in the Commons agrees upon. Well, I think that's absolutely right. Um, Paul, let me ask you the same question, really, because um, it is being seen as, as Labour getting a bit of a let-off, but it may not be the case that, that actually that turns out to be right in the long run. But there's a certain irony, is there not, in the SNP getting up on their hind legs and complaining about procedures inside the House of Commons where they inevitably don't wish to be anyway? Yes, and they're just playing pure politics with this. I mean, I would love to think this was an honest attempt to try and settle a very difficult issue in the Middle East. Uh, but it's right. not, is it? No. It was designed to embarrass Labour as part of the politics of Scotland. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, most of those SNP MPs are probably not going to even be there after the next election anyway. So it's pure politics. And their anger is because they didn't get the chance to split Labour down mm. the middle. Um, because of the way the procedure works, and as simple as that, really. Yeah. So I just think it's, um, you know, it's, this is not about Gaza, this is not about ceasefires, this is about pure politics. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Louise, back to you. It, unfortunately, it seems to me, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be speaking about this a little bit later on, but, you know, we've got a whole host of problems in this country. You know, we're, we're, we're taxed the most we've been taxed since the Second World War. You know, we can't keep people from coming to the country whether, they, whether we want them here or not. We can't deport people from the country whether we want them here or not. We can't see a doctor. You wait eight hours in an A&E for, for any kind of service that you want to get. And this has been an entirely wasted day for me on the vanity and virtue signalling of all these politicians who want to make a statement about a place where nobody cares what they think. Yeah, it's true that nobody nobody cares what they think. And later on in your show, you're going to talk about something really important, which is the fact that the Royal Navy is in trouble yeah. and that we've had misfiring of crucial national security missiles. Maybe we could concentrate a bit more on the funding for our armed forces, especially when NATO is under threat from Donald Trump, instead of having basically what amounts to a catfight, even if it is justified, about the precise wording of an agreed-upon strategy, mm. which is a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. I mean, get over yourselves. Yeah. Well, as somebody said uh, on Talk TV earlier this, uh, on this day, I've never heard of anything not a humanitarian ceasefire. You don't really have a sort of, a, you know, a tricky and rather nasty, obnoxious ceasefire, do you? It doesn't really work. <laughs> but, I mean, back to you, Paul. Um, is this really the end of the problem for Keir Starmer? I very much doubt it, because the more uh, that the, the Palestinian cause is brought up... I mean, I came into work tonight, there's a Palestinian demonstration outside... Southwark Council. I don't know what Southwark Council have done to upset the demonstrators, but, but almost every place in London you go, almost every street, there's people waving Palestine flags. We saw what happened to Rachel Reeves out on the, uh, on the stump the other day. Every Labour MP that goes anywhere is going to be asked what their policy is on Gaza, still. Well, they're not being asked. They are being barracks, they're being picketed, they're being abused. There's some great sense of threat going on. And uh, you say it's Palestine. It's not, it's not actual Palestinians, is it? It is sort of the woke Guardian reading. Well, do you know, interesting you say that. Labor. A lot of the Palestinian demonstrators are actually Palestinian, it turns out. You know, look at the three people who were, who were convicted of wearing the parachutes on their backs. Two well, of them the, the, were the Palestinian. that I've had to walk through, I mean, the people blockading the uh, SME for Labour 
gala dinner the other night. <laughs> you know, we're just the, the Corbynistas, basically, yes. and the people that uh, don't like Starmer and don't like Labour at all. And those are the backbone of the people now harassing Labour MPs and candidates. And any event we have now is going to have to have security yeah. uh, right up to the election. But I have to say, you know, Labour's position is not going to be altered by a bunch of thugs outside shouting... Uh, anti-Semitic slogans at us, um, you know, it will be a considered view based on the geopolitics of a party that might well be in government soon. So well, you say, well, you say that, Paul, impact. but this, this positioning by Sir Keir Starmer today is, I'm told, the fifth different position that he's occupied. So, I mean, you say that you won't be influenced, but in fact, well, it, he's already been influenced, it, has he not? Well, he's been influenced by events, I think. I, I don't think it's fair to say he's been influenced by Demo. He's, uh, he's a pretty resilient sort of bloke. But he has he's been known as Captain Flip-Flop, for heaven's sake. Paul, come on, he's and known the, as Captain Flip-Flop. The, uh, the unfolding situation is what's informing his view. Plus, you know, you look around the world at our partners, our security partners, uh, the Five Eyes Nations and so on, they, they, they've shifted positions too as things have unfolded. You can't, you know, we had a leader last time around who hadn't changed his mind on anything since 1978. Um, and he was rightly criticised for his in intractability. This guy... And he was also uh, supported by Keir Starmer. He was also change. supported by Keir Starmer, Paul. Well, to agree to that is true, I'm not sure. Uh, but certainly he's made a very clean break. Well, he's admitted that he supported him because he wanted he to get... Well, he's admitted he supported him because he wanted to get him elected. Nothing wrong with that. But let's not point, paint Keir Starmer as a man of great principle who never changed his mind just because he doesn't know what to do. Well, if you look at what he's done to the party over the last two or three years, though, he kicked out most of the anti-Semites, he's completely transformed the economic policy. I mean, Apart from the two candidates to... in uh, the recent by-election problems. He's uh, certainly trying to meet the electorate halfway and, um, you know, the opinion polls suggest that people are at least open to the idea of listening to Labour again after being afraid of it yeah. three or four years well, ago. So, I mean, to be honest, you know, he has shifted ground. I think, the pop I think the people of Britain are willing to listen to anyone at this point other than the Tories. Uh, let's go back to Louise. Louise, um, the UN has been in the news as well this week because they've um, been under fire for a veto uh, on, on the Gaza war. The UN is, is playing a kind of curious role in all of this, isn't it? Uh, the UN, the world's biggest chocolate teapot, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Absolutely useless in every situation, designed to prevent wars. And what happens? It allows Russia to get away with everything and does absolutely nothing about the invasion of Ukraine, which, by the way, is the far more important one of war of the two that's going on yes. right now. Uh, the UN are absolutely useless. Now, it is true that the United States did veto that resolution by the UN because I think, frankly, President Biden has had enough of Netanyahu being intractable and refusing to negotiate at all, even behind the scenes with the Americans. But at the end of the day, the Americans' patience is not inexhaustible. And if you look past the uh, catfight uh, that was going on today in the House of Commons, What's the real point? The real point is that all, all of the parties in the British Parliament say this needs to tone down now. We need to have some sort of a ceasefire, a pause, a break in the fighting to look at your strategy. Because Hamas have not been eradicated and tens of thousands of people are now dead. So at the very least, take a pause and see, is this strategy getting me to where I want to go? which yeah. is the elimination of Hamas. Yes, and that is the problem, isn't it? Because all these people who talk about a two-state solution um, forget that Hamas don't want a two-state solution. Netanyahu doesn't want one either. The only people who want them is everybody outside of the conflict. You have to wonder what would happen if we said, bring us the head of Hamas, bring him out, put him out, deliver him to the IDF, 
And if they were to do that, because he's undoubtedly hiding somewhere in that region, would that be enough to end the war? You have to ask yourself, what is enough to end the war from Israel's point of view and perhaps make them articulate what they see yeah. as victory? Yes. Find it. Yes, indeed. Um, and maybe, indeed, it's Qatar they should be talking to uh, and Iran rather than actually anybody right, else. Right, so I have, I, have I have often made the point that what they should really do is send some of those excellent IDF assassins out to Qatar to take out the trash. Yeah, I think that would be a very good and welcome thing to do. Uh, Louise, thanks very much indeed. Back to you, Paul. I'm, I'm told 33 MPs have now signed a vote of no confidence uh, in, in Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker. I don't know uh, who they are. I haven't been given that information, but um, uh, I imagine they will not be Labour MPs. No, I don't suppose they are. And I think Lindsay will survive this because he's a very well-respected speaker and he has support across the House. So I don't think it's very fair to start blaming him. Um, I laid the blame clearly with the SNP. You know, most people in this country care about the state of the NHS, not the state of Palestine. Uh, and the SNP have wasted a whole day of Opposition Day debate on this when we could be talking about much more important things. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I think, and that's exactly what I was saying earlier, that, you know, the public are looking at this going, you know, I can't get a doctor's appointment. I can't get my cancer treatment sorted out. I cannot get the police to come to my house when I get burgled. I can't catch a train from point A to point B without it being delayed or cancelled. I can't um, walk down the main street of, of my town uh, because there's too many bike lanes and cars parked everywhere. You know, the whole place is a shambles. And I think we ought to be doing better, shouldn't we? Yes, and I mean, the, the opposition parties get these opposition day debates and they can choose the topic of the, what they want to talk about for hours. Mm. And the SNP decided to do this again. They've already done it once. And I'm pretty sure the people of Scotland have got other things on their mind as well as this. Obviously, international relations is important, but so is potholes and so is yeah. jobs and so is the NHS. And so that when I said, you know, they're playing politics with this, that's what I mean. They, they chose the topic because they knew it would be embarrassing to their Labour opposition. Yeah. Uh, and it's got nothing at all to do with the Middle East. Yeah, I think you find the people of Scotland aren't that keen on the SNP either. But listen, Paul Richards, thank you very much indeed. Louise Madge, great to see you. Thank you very much for both of you uh, for your input on that. You're watching The Independent Republic uh, of Mike Graham. Coming up, humiliation for the Royal Navy after another nuke flop. Welcome back. The Royal Navy is licking its wounds today after an embarrassing test blunder was exposed by the Sun newspaper. A Trident missile dramatically misfired and crashed into the ocean off the coast of Florida last month with the Defence Secretary on board to witness the failure. The humiliating incident comes just eight years after the Navy's last unsuccessful attempt and at a time of high global tension when Britain's armed forces are being tested for a potential conflict with Russia. Let's get more on this now with former Royal Navy Chief Lord Admiral West. Uh, Lord West, very good evening to you. Thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us. Um, in American baseball parlance, the Royal Navy's 0 for 2, uh, which is never a great place to be. Um, what on earth happened? What do you think went wrong? Well, I mean, certainly it's very embarrassing, and uh, uh, one has to sort of unpick it all a bit. The, the whole point of the, the DASO operation, which is what Vanguard, HMS Vanguard, was the submarine involved, was involved in, is designed to check out a submarine when it's had a refit and lots of work done and has got a new crew to make sure that all aspects in the submarine work and that the crew know their jobs. And uh, there's no doubt that actually this day so operation did actually show that, the, uh, that all the parts of the submarine worked, which is good and it jolly well should be because it's been 
11, seven years in refit, which is absolutely ridiculous and right. costing a lot of money. Um, but everything worked, which is good. And the crew, the Americans, uh, put them in simulators ashore, checked them all out. Uh, the Americans were very, very impressed with them. All of that worked. Of course, the thing that didn't work is the actual missile itself. And the missile that's used isn't the missile, isn't one of the missiles you're normally firing with warheads. It's one one that's used for this this sort of operation just to check it out, check out the, the system. And that is the bit that didn't work. Um, it fired from the submarine in the way it should do. That's compressed air shoots it out of the submarine. It's quite amazing, really. And the submarine hovers at about, I don't know, 40, 40 feet or something under the water. The missile shot out, and then very cleverly, when it pops clear of the of the sea's surface, it starts to slow down, and sensors in the missile should then fire the rocket motors. And what didn't happen is the rocket motors didn't fire. And uh, now, when one's looked into all the various aspects, uh, we know what caused that problem within the missile, and that doesn't really affect the price of fish as regards the capabilities of the submarine. Um, so that is the good news. But it looks bad, and I have to say, you know, it is embarrassing. Of course yeah. it's embarrassing. Well, it is, because at the end of the day, you can't really test fire um, intercontinental ballistic nuclear missiles because of, for obvious reasons. But, but if, if all you can do is look at the last two in uh, eight years apart, both of which had a problem, then it's difficult to take the word, it would seem to me, of anybody who says, I'm sure everything will be fine if we really need to use them. Well, as I say, I mean, we know exactly what caused it in those missiles, and those missiles are not the missiles that are used when we're... God help, I hope we never have to use them, but if we actually have to use them. And uh, I, I think what I... The sorts of things that actually uh, I found very surprising. I was surprised that the media didn't pick it up quicker. In a way, I'm glad they didn't, because it gave time to look in to see what the problem was. I mean, if the media had picked it up the day of the launch, which yeah. they actually could have done, to be quite honest, because right. they'd mentioned about the firing in the media, but I think they were all distracted by Gaza and, uh, and Ukraine and all sorts right. of things. But it gave time for a complete check through the whole system to make sure what had, what had gone right. wrong. And I think also, it's no, it, it, there's no way that Putin... Uh, yes, he'll have a laugh. Of course, he'll have a laugh about this. But there's no way that he thinks that our system doesn't work. I mean, the Russians are so sure it works, they don't even bother to put intelligence gatherers around the site when we're doing these firings. They always used to years ago. Right. And they just don't do that now. And there have been, there've been a whole raft of firings, almost 200 firings altogether. Um, some have, a, a couple have gone wrong with the Americans as well. But it's the missile itself um, is the problem. But is it also the, the fact that the, the system is so old? Because it's about 30 years old, I think, isn't it? The whole Trident um, yeah, I mean, it, missile it an and system. submarine system. And it, and it may well have had a refit, but at the end of the day, maybe the reason the Russians don't bother spying on us anymore in that area is because they've seen it all before. Well, I think they know that it all works and there's no point in them trying to find out and get any more information. I mean, what is certainly still true is... Our submarines are, are, we are better as submariners and with our submarines than the Russians are. But of course, we've got way too few because defence has been starved of money since 2010. The coalition in 2010, in their defence review, cut the military by a third. I don't think the British public realised what the coalition did. And that was a dramatic cut. I mean, they got rid of Ark Royal, you know, our carrier, they got rid of the Harrier aircraft, which the Americans were so pleased to get because they were completely modded up to date. Uh, and a whole raft of other areas, they cut 
numbers of sailors, numbers of uh, soldiers dramatically. And ever since then, year on year, effectively, they've also cut defence. It's only very recently they've added any extra money. And that money isn't anywhere near what would have been there or what is required to ensure that our forces are capable. There's no doubt, you're quite right, the Vanguard-class submarines should by now have been replaced by the Dreadnought-class. Mm. But the government, post the coalition, did, and particularly the coalition government, refused to say, right, let's move ahead with this programme. Right. Consequently, these Vanguard-class submarines are having to run 15, 20 years longer than they should have done. That's why Vanguard had this hugely expensive long refit. And what's amazing is they've done it in juggling to keep one submarine at sea all the time, uh, hidden in the wastes of the North Atlantic or the Arctic. Um, and it's done that, we've done that since 1968, 24-7, you know, every single, every single day of the year um, since 1968. It's an amazing achievement, but my God, it's proving difficult. And that is not helped by the fact the government haven't been spending enough money. And what really annoys me, Putin now has increased his defence expenditure to 40% of his GDP. 40%. That is a war economy in any definition. Yeah. And what does our government do? Our government says, oh, well, I think, you know, we must think about increasing our spending up to 2.5%, but, you know, we'll think when we do it. If someone is doing that and thinking of war, you spend now. I find it absolutely extraordinary. Well, we seem to be living now in a much more dangerous world than, than at any time I can remember. Um, and Vladimir Putin is literally at war. So, you know, he's already on a war footing. He's already, you know, you might say he's deployed in a different area and he's in Ukraine and he might not be able to move anywhere specifically uh, further west than that. But, you know, suddenly we've got a NATO problem. Suddenly we've got a, a shortage of submarines, hardware and missiles problem. Um, I mean, if there was something drastic to happen, are we still um, involved in a sort of mutually assured destruction scenario? Well, we certainly still have that capability. Um, and God forfend that should ever that should ever happen. But you're, I mean, you are absolutely spot on about Putin. I said in the House, I've said it now a couple of times recently. Putin actually acts as if he is at war with us. Yeah. He calls it his grey zone warfare. We know he's done cyber attacks, not just on Ukraine. He's done cyber attacks in Estonia and France. He's tried to do them against us. Luckily, our NCSC manages to stop him doing that. We know that he's had attempts at hitting cables under the ocean, which carry you know, all pretty well 95% of all our financial transactions mm. and other things. You know, he, 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 we've got to actually stand up to him. If you don't show you're willing to spend money on defence, and if you don't show you're willing to fight for what you believe in, then autocrats, dictators like him, take advantage of. It's interesting in the Falklands, there's no doubt that one of the key drivers of uh, Galtieri invading was to save seven, £16 million. Pounds. We got rid of Endurance, which is our only ship based down there. And he saw this going and thought, they don't care, and he invaded. And the final cost then in the Falklands was £4 billion pounds and 300 of our men and killed. You know, that's what happens when you don't spend money on defence. Well, that's the thing, and he's chipping away. I mean, the latest story tonight is that he's declared a cod war on Britain, tearing up the fishing rights that have existed since around about 1956 that allow our fishermen to go and search their waters for cod. Apparently, uh, he's basically uh, nixed that and said, you can't do that anymore in the Bering Sea. I must have been, I hadn't heard that until I was listening to your programme. I, I hadn't heard that, but it's, it's typical of his actions, I'm afraid. And we used to have, I mean, there's another thing, we used to have huge fishing fleets 
up in the Barents Sea and, of course, all around Iceland who stopped us doing that. I mean, things have changed in this country. As a young officer in the Fishery Protection Squadron, little tiny frigate, we used to go right up in the Arctic because there were hundreds of British fishermen fishing up there. And that's all changed now. But it's interesting. I hadn't heard he had changed that, uh, that law. But we've got very few now go up there fishing, I'm afraid, because of other pressures on our own fishermen. Yes, absolutely right. But at least we've got some decent diversity in the armed forces now, uh, Admiral Lord West, so we can be safe in <laughs> well, our beds um, you, with that seen, one. You've seen, my, you've seen my comments in the <laughs> Sunday papers about... I, I mean, I think when we're so short of people, when we're pressed, the important thing, what, what our nation wants from its armed forces is our forces that are capable of looking after our own people and defending our country and fighting, not actually of using lots and lots of men and women to actually make sure diversity is right and that there are specific groups for all these various uh, special interest groups. And that is, not, that is not what the military is about. We are all of one company. We all fight together. We all die together. And that's what we've got to have. And I'm afraid we've lost the plot of it. Absolutely right. Admiral Lord West, thank you very much indeed. Good to see you. Good to talk to you. Thanks very much for your help thank there. You. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, but stay watching because we will look at Rishi Sunak's new electioneering strategy, also known as stating the bleeding obvious. Welcome back. Last week's by-election results saw a massive blow to the Tories, but the Prime Minister is desperately attempting to keep calm and carry on. Rishi seems to have a new electioneering strategy, which is also known as stating the bleeding obvious. Earlier this week, schools were told to ban pupils from using mobile phones, even though they pretty much already are. Yesterday, Rishi had reaffirmed his support for farmers and insisted he's got their back. But then today, teachers were told uh, they will be legally required to report child abuse. What can we expect next? Maybe they'll tell us it's illegal to drive without insurance. To give us their take on the state of the Tories, uh, it's Telegraph journalist Stephen Edgington, political commentator Candy Holdsworth, and Ezra Spikes Online, Tom Slater. Uh, welcome to all three of you. Um, I guess we can dispense with the Tories for the moment, in that sense anyway, but talk about what happened tonight uh, and this afternoon in the House of Commons. An absolute shambles. I mean, even Leila Moran called it embarrassing. And you know when you're in a bad place when that happens, you know. And it was absolutely quite... Unbelievable. At one point, they were asking to vote in secret, take the cameras down so that nobody could see what was going on. Otherwise, you know, there might be re repercussions, retribution. There was a, a, a de you know, demand by Lindsay Hoyle that they should change the protocol so that the opposition Labour Party could get the amendment against the SNP. People walked out. I mean, just amazing scenes. It's quite embarrassing, really, isn't it? It's terrible. Country, to see this stuff, because yeah. this has no impact whatsoever on anything. The no. Israelis aren't looking at this stuff. It's just us humiliating ourselves in Parliament because of, frankly, a mob yeah. of activists yeah. who are bullying MPs into discussing this issue, who are bullying Labour into mm. calling for a ceasefire. Labour have sort of appeased these, these activists. Yeah. And they follow them around everywhere. When Angela Rayner walks yes. down the street, she can't... Um, she can't you know, be left without right. being shouted at over this ceasefire issue. So yeah. I think this is a really sort of humiliating thing. It really is. I mean, I came in tonight and I didn't actually know exactly what the building was, but I later discovered Southwark Council, uh, which is in Tooley Street down the road here. There's a huge mob outside there waving Palestinian flags. I don't know what they've done. Whether they put council tax up in Gaza City or something, you know. <laughs> but it is mad, isn't it? Well, they're, yeah, hoping to apply that political pressure and they're sort of playing the long game. I mean, after October 7th, there was a huge amount of support. I mean, unqualified yeah. support 
for Israel, but gradually you've seen it ebb away. And now you've seen these like qualified statements. I mean, trying to pick apart what the difference was between the SNP, Labour, yeah. and Conservatives on right. this. And there are the differences, but they're trying very carefully to make their language, mm. you know, appeal to different sorts of people. Right. I think that was predictable, but it is true. You have got this sort of political intimidation now. Yeah. And it's been going on and on and on and on. I mean, the debate's always been yes. nasty. I mean, anyone who knows the Israel-Palestine debate knows that it is just one of the nastiest, right. nastiest debates. But sort of now everyone's getting a bit of it now, getting yeah. a taste of it. And they're not going to solve it in one afternoon in the House of Commons, you no. know, after 2,000 years. But, I mean, the argument about Lindsay Hoyle being in the wrong is that he kind of let Sakir Starmer off the hook mm. because he allowed um, their motion to be sort of the one that went through, thereby meaning that they wouldn't have an opportunity the Labour Party MPs to vote for the SNP. Oh, absolutely. Um, if you think about how this particular battle in the House of Commons has ended with the Labour motion effectively winning by default, it's hard not to see that as things panned out, it's been a huge benefit to the Labour Party. Yeah. It's worth facing such a huge potential rebellion on their hands, yeah. people being on resignation watch. That was all the mood music going into this. Yeah. Now, and especially for Lindsay Hoyle, because of the fact that he was very much trying to be the anti-Burko when he came in. Yeah. He's not going to be the political grandstanding speaker who will change convention at any time just to benefit the people, or the Labour Party effectively, or people who tend to have sympathies with. Um, and now I think that lies in tatters. And to see him yeah. suddenly turn around so quickly this afternoon and start apologising yes. profusely, I think he recognises I think he realised that his, his, his life was on the line. Let's have a look at that apology uh, as he delivered it a little while ago. No, we haven't got it. No, we did have it. Have we got it? No, you know you've got it. And I've tried to do... I have tried to do what I thought was the right thing for all sides of this house. I thought I was doing the right thing and the best thing, and I regret it and I apologise for how it's ended up. I do take responsibility for my actions, and that's why I want to meet... And that's why I want to meet with the key players who have been involved. Well, he may want to meet with the key players that have been involved. We're told there's about 32 MPs and counting uh, looking for a motion of no confidence. And I think he may have been held below the waterline here because, I mean, I'm, I'm not one of those that thinks Lindsay Hoyle's been a brilliant speaker at all. I find him irritating in the extreme, quite pompous during Prime Minister's questions, threatening to throw people out and then not doing it. You know, I mean, he's, quite, quite, he's got quite a bit of Burko about him. Well, when you follow Burko, there is an incredibly low bar for being a good speaker. <laughs> Yeah. I think that Lindsay Hoyle looks a lot better than, than John Burko mm. does, frankly. However, as you say, I think quite rightly, he hasn't been an excellent speaker. And the Conservatives, they've had this odd thing where you've got this protocol where you've got a Conservative speaker and then a Labour mm. speaker, and it seems like we've just had two Labour speakers yeah. for the last almost well, 20 years. Well, I mean, we, Burko was known to have not really been a proper Tory. Mm. He was really more aligned with Labour, and in fact, he wanted to become a Labour peer. But I think, as, as, as Hoyle would say, yes, he's been better than, uh, than Burko, but not as partisan until today. And suddenly, if he's now accused of helping Labour, then that, you know, not partisan bit will, will disappear. But let's go back to the Tories, um, Candice, because that's supposedly why we're here. Um, Rishi Sunak still can't really get anything right, can he? He can't. And, you know, I think with these by-elections where he did so badly, mm. people are thinking, oh, they're going to be more leadership shenanigans. Right. I mean, there were sort of predictions that maybe you would call a May election to see yeah. them off. But we were discussing earlier, is it going to make any difference? 
Like, is there anything he can do, wrong or right now, that's yeah. going to make any difference? I don't think so. Are we so. focusing on him too much, even? Mm. Yeah. I wonder if the only thing that could happen to him is, is a sort of self-implosion from Labour, because there's still that possibility. I mean, Keir Starmer does not look like a man in charge of his party, mm -hmm. whatever they keep saying. You know, every time you wheel out some Labour apparatchik, they're like, look how he's cleaned up the party. And you go, Rochdale, well, you know, that was an anomaly. <laughs> you know, what about the other guy? You know, he used to be an MP. Oh, well, you know, that's OK. Mm -hmm. What about all these MPs who want to resign uh, because they're don't believe that you've got the right attitude on Gaza. You know, it's still it's still possible, I think. It's I mean, true. And sorry, I was just saying, this is the problem when you make your whole strategy just waiting for the Tory party yeah. to collapse. Right. Because there is no positive reason that people feel to have to vote for Keir Starmer. Right. Mm. And no. they're not really, are they? I mean, you know, there's not great enthusiasm for Labour. Well, Labour, as we've seen today, are completely obsessed with the Gaza argument and they can't seem to get past it. They can't get beyond it. Even their own people can't agree on a form of wording. Well, Keir Starmer is clearly no... Tony Blair. Mm. However, the Conservative Party have been in charge for 14 years. And every day on this show, I know that you might cover all of the failures that yeah. the Conservatives have implemented, yeah. including record migration, record taxation, yeah. record spending, complete takeover of, of the civil service yeah. by woke activists, all under Conservative government, Conservative ministers. Mm. And I think that feeling of betrayal, particularly from those Conservative voters in 2019 and those Brexit voters in 2016, yeah they will feel a real sense of betrayal after all of those failures that I've just mentioned. Yeah. So why should they ever return to the Conservative Party again, let, mm. let alone in this election? Is there, any chance, is there any chance that any of these splinter groups do anything, like Liz mm. Truss's pop cons and reform? I know they're not really a splinter group, but, you know, yeah. is there any chance that right-wing Tories will sort of meander over to one group? Well, I, th I think it seems like, to the, especially where the public are concerned, it just looks like rats fighting in a sack. Mm. I actually think it's worse for Sunak than you're suggesting, Stephen, because I don't think people were furious with Sunak. They're kind of indifferent to him. They're kind of... Uh, they're just so unimpressed with him. It's like the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And I think that's what you get with Sunak at the moment. People just think he's kind of pathetic. Yeah. And that's almost the worst position to be in as a political yeah. leader. People might disagree with you, but they can still respect you for taking the position. I think in Sunak's case particularly, but somewhat true with Starmer as well, People just are so unimpressed by right. them. And also, when everything's going this wrong, just don't be slick. Yes. Just don't go to a farmer's conference where nobody's been for 15 years and go, mm. we've got your back. Because everyone goes, no, you haven't. <laughs> you haven't been here for 15 years. I know. Maybe it's authenticity people want. I feel like we're in that moment. People like it as well in, like, the media figures as well. They don't like anything too polished now. People quite like a bit rough around the edges, yeah. I think. There's some suggestion, although this has been said before, Penny Mordaunt could beat Starmer at the next election. I don't know where that comes from. <laughs> Penny it's from some a poll of, uh, of Tory voters, apparently. Yeah. I mean, Penny Morden, she is incredibly woke. If you yeah. look at the book that she wrote... Well, yeah, absolutely. There's and, history and of her saying, it's saying a trans woman is a woman in the House of Commons, right? The one thing that she has in her sort of tick box is mm. that she managed to hold a, hold a sword properly. Right. Um, at the but then we all found out it was in a, it was in a sort of holder, <laughs> which kind of defeated sort of the object. It. I mean, it's one thing if she's going like that, with yeah. it, but it was actually in a, in a scabbard. I, I like the idea... Unimpressive, sorry. I, I was just saying, I like the idea of this is how the Tory party chooses their leader, if you can carry a sword yeah. well across it. That bring, sounds Bring back Hessel time with a mace, is what I say. <laughs> <laughs> You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Still to come, the infamous Colston statue. Where does it belong? You may well ask. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Now it's time for Taking the Mic. Now, you'd think we had nothing to worry about in this country, wouldn't you? You'd think everything was running smoothly and that no-one could possibly have anything to complain about. 
I mean, it's not as if we have the highest tax burden now than ever since the Second World War. It's not as though we routinely can't get an appointment to see our GP. And heaven forbid we should complain that driving a car is becoming an increasingly difficult and expensive thing to do. Those might be my top three bugbears, but there are plenty of others. How about a Royal Navy submarine that can't even fire a missile correctly? Or a hospital A&E department where patients wait hours and hours to be seen by anyone? And of course, there's the police. Not only don't they solve any crimes anymore, but they don't even bother to come round to see you if your house has been burgled. All of which makes today's events in Parliament seem even more ridiculous than they at first appeared. The 650 or so MPs didn't think to discuss any of the above issues which cause irritation to people up and down this country every single day. No. Instead, they decided to get all hot and bothered about a conflict happening thousands of miles away, calling for a ceasefire in a war that very few of them even understand beyond the simple soundbite politics they've inhabited for years. Aside from activists and virtue signalers up and down the land, most people in this country are not embroiled in the nitty-gritty of what's happening in Gaza, and neither should they be. Most Britons don't expect to be able to order the Prime Minister of Israel around when his people are facing genocide from a terrorist organisation sworn to destroy them. But what do we get from our Westminster nitwits? Arguments about whether to demand an immediate ceasefire, an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, an immediate humanitarian pause, or a permanent ceasefire? All of those echoed around the hallowed halls of the House of Commons. The Speaker of the House even broke with tradition to select amendments from both the government and the opposition, along with the motion from the Scottish National Party. And it all meant, in the end, a big, fat nothing. We are months away from an election. Some might think that the issue of Gaza is a big one in some constituencies with large Muslim populations. And Labour might keep pretending it isn't splitting the party asunder. But here's what I can tell you. Even if 200,000 people march for free Palestine this weekend, they will represent less than 0.1% of Britain's population. And they will be the same numpties who did it last weekend and the weekend before. Therefore, their views are minority views and their case should sit well back on any government's priority list. It's been a long time since the United Kingdom wielded any real influence in the world. Let's just concentrate on fixing our own country, shall we? Thanks very much. Now, does the name Edward Colston ring a bell? Remember the statue vandalised and toppled during a Black Lives Matter protest in June 2020 and thrown into Bristol Harbour? all those years ago. A year later, it was put on display with a survey asking what people think should be done next with it. Well, four years on, and they're still deciding whether to move it into a museum. Obviously, we had to send our roving reporter, Nick Ellaby, down there today to find out what's going on. Hello, Mike. This is a complicated problem because historical figures and these statues mean different things to different people. Like Mr Edward Colston, who was here until four years ago, and those protesters at the Black Lives Matters movement 2020, during lockdown, pulled him down with ropes and dragged him some 300 metres down this street and chucked him in the harbour. He was then fished out with graffiti and everything else on him and put in a local museum for a couple of years where the people of Bristol were consulted on what they think should happen to Mr Colston. Now, he's a huge benefactor to the city of Bristol, but he also got a lot of his money by benefiting from the slave trade. Overwhelmingly, really, the people of Bristol are quite happy for him to stay in the museum. Here's what they told us about what they think should happen to Mr Colston's statue. 
I personally think it should have been left in the harbour because it was a fitting because obviously that was where the slaves that he would have traded came from and it was also just like cyclical and I don't think it deserves to be put in a place that's like on display where art is and like a place of like something to admire. I think him being in a museum it's a context where people can talk about okay he was pulled down he's been put up here we can talk about why that was. As it's come down which I think was the right thing to happen it is a teachable moment, isn't it? So if we put it in the museum, then people can see it and we can teach the, the sordid history of slavery. I don't know why we have statues of people who were slave owners. That doesn't really make any sense to me. Um, to me, that looks like you are glorifying, for lack of better wording, um, a slave owner. So really what the people of Bristol are telling us is that they think the museum is the best place for the statue of Mr Edward Colston. We also spoke to a Green Party councillor, Christine Townsend, earlier, and she'd actually like to see the city go one step further. Here's what she told us about what she'd like to see happen to commemorate people who lost their lives in the slave trade. We would like to have seen a separate um, sort of space for the entirety of Bristol's involvement in the transatlantic slave trade, rather than an addition to what is one of our central museums. And we'd also like to see a memorial to those that lost their lives as a result of what that, that, that man did in Bristol. On the other side of the debate, you have people like Councillor Chris Windows of the Conservatives here in Bristol, who said that he thinks the statue was pulled down because of political correctness. We also spoke to a former independent candidate for the mayor of Bristol, a guy called John Langley, and he's unhappy with what happened in 2020 and actually started a petition to put Mr Colston back on the plinth, but that only received 60 signatures. Here's what he told me about that petition and why he started it. Well, it was mainly to do with the fact that, you know, some self-entitled individuals felt it was their right to actually pull down public property and put it in the river. So that's what we started me off. Um, you know, let's face it, it's been here since 1895. So over the, over the years, millions of people have been passing it every day, people going to work, you know, and people with more things on their, better things on their mind, such as paying the rent, paying the mortgage, paying their bills. Um, and people just passed it and it was almost invisible, you know, until they highlighted it. John's view, though, compared to what we've found out by talking to the people here in Bristol, it does seem to be a minority view. It does look like the statue of Mr Colston will end up in the museum on the harbour in Bristol called M Shed. There's a, an exhibition next month about protests and it looks like that's where the, the statue will start its life from now as a permanent museum exhibit. Mike. Thanks very much, Nick, for that report. And, of course, um, we all remember those times when you thought, what on earth is going wrong? Why are statues being brought down? Why are statues being boarded up? Why can't people actually understand that history is what makes this country? And if you don't like it, that doesn't matter. It still doesn't make it go away if you don't want it. Coming up on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, of course, uh, we're going to be talking about Britain's most dangerous spider and also outrage over plans to house asylum seekers in a tiny Cumbrian town. Stay tuned. For the next hour.
Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and we are on your smart speaker. Coming up, people are in a furore over secret plans to home migrants in their tiny Cumbrian town, while hundreds of locals wait for affordable housing. Plus, what's the true cost of net zero? Newly published research shows Britain's green transition risks making the poor poorer. I hate to say it, but I told you so. And how do you like that? Motorists suffering from gridlock due to a low traffic scheme introduced by the council give them a taste of their own medicine. Now, there can't be all that many people out there who remember the story of Samson and the lion. Samson, you might know, was the character in the Bible who obtained all of his power from his long hair. And you might also remember that he knocked a few pillars down, lost his eyes to the Philistines, and then lost everything when he met Delilah. She cut off all his hair and he was rendered completely useless. No surprises there so far. Hence the Tom Jones song, Why, 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 Delilah, as you probably know. You probably won't be as familiar, though, with the story uh, that he actually killed a lion and was quite famous for it. And even more unlikely is that you knew that that was the image chosen by the Tate & Lyle Company for its golden syrup back in the 19th century. Well, now that I've got your attention, I can explain why all that history is important. It's important because the wokists at the Lyle Company have now decided that the dead lion, surrounded by a swarm of bees signifying that, in quotes, out of the strong came forth sweetness, no longer represents the modern UK family. So guess what? Yep, they've changed it to refresh and revitalise the brand's legacy to appeal to a 20th century audience. What they actually mean is to appeal to people who might be offended by Christianity. Heaven help us, you might say, if you were that way inclined. You might also conclude that changing a 150-year-old logo to a live lion with a single B is yet another move to marginalise Christianity from our society. It was the world's oldest unchanged brand packaging. I remember it from my childhood growing up. It was a special treat to get that golden syrup. The brand created by the company's founder, Abraham Lyle, even holds a Guinness World Record. And it's pretty bloody obvious why they've changed it. Sam Margave, who's a member of the Church of England's General Synod, isn't happy. He said, Bible stories have appealed to families for millennia. There's nothing modern about ditching tradition or sidelining Christian messaging. I enjoy golden syrup with my pancakes on Shrove Tuesday every year. And my Muslim, Jewish and friends of other faiths love that we are a Christian country and have a Christian heritage. Let's celebrate our Christian stories and history. I hope Lyle will rethink this move. Amen to that, you might say. Tate and Lyle, meanwhile, reckon religion played no part in the decision to change the logo. It does make you wonder, though, doesn't it? Now, coming up later on the show, we'll bring you a look at tomorrow's front pages and other parts of the papers inside. But before anyone else, we've got an exclusive look at the Metro front page. And it's a rather charming human interest story about a couple who won the lottery. Um, and it's uh, Richard and Debbie Nuttall, both 54 years of age, got an email from the National Lottery saying they had exciting news and they thought they'd won the grand sum of £2.60. And, of course... Um, Debbie said, we were very excited. We thought, we'll go and have a bacon butty. But it turned out a second email came shortly thereafter which said what they'd actually won was £61 million. Unbelievable. The lottery jackpot. Now, uh, no matter how many times you read these stories, uh, people always love them. So we'll discuss that a little bit later on with my panel uh, and much else besides. But for right now... Let's talk about the residents of Millam, a tiny seaside town in Cumbria, because they've been up in arms about government plans to house around 40 asylum seekers in eight homes, despite the town itself suffering 
from a housing shortage. Millam sits within the borough of Copeland and Talk TV has obtained an email sent in November 2022, two years ago, by Copeland Council to Serco, a major company which is contracted by the Home Office to accommodate asylum seekers in the area. It says... I would highly recommend that all areas of Copeland are unsuitable with the sole exception of the outer estates within Whitehaven Town. That said, specifically the following locations are definitely unsuitable. Millam and surrounding area due to its isolation from public services, including the police. We have reached out to Serco and Copeland Council for a response, but have not heard back yet. But we did hear back from the Home Office. They said... The Home Office has a statutory duty to provide safe and secure housing for asylum seekers and we are continuing to work closely with local authorities, including in Millam, to manage any impact in the area and address local concerns. Manage impact, eh? Well, I've got two guests joining me right now with plenty to say about that. First up, the chair of Millam Town Council, Jed McGrath, and the spokesman for the Millam Community Action Group that opposes the scheme, Dean Myers. Um, Dean, let me start with you, first of all. Um, so it seems as though the council sent a letter to Serco, who were making an awful lot of money out of rehousing some of these people, telling them that Millen was not suitable. You discover, somehow, that uh, home, home Office officials are going ahead with these housing uh, plans anyway. Yeah, it was, it was brought to our attention via uh, social media that mm. uh, this was the intention... Uh, when we actually looked into it, we, we didn't really realise how big that um, it was actually happening. Um, Serco, obviously, <laughs> you've tried yourself to speak to them. They won't even yeah. consult with us. We, have, we don't know anything that's happening. We didn't even know who was coming into the town. It was only through word of mouth from local people that we actually knew that HMOs were starting and, and we didn't even know who was going in them. Incredible. Jed, let me come to you. Um... The town itself is, is pretty isolated. It's, there's no police station. There's already a shortage of affordable housing for the people living there. Uh, there's no doctor's surgery, I'm told. I mean, what would the impact be if 40 migrants moved in? Mike, let, let's not just beat about the brush about 40. We know that 20-plus houses were involved in this. Yeah. We as a council managed to get a number of those withdrawn by some of the developers. So, so we're not talking 40. We, we were talking a, a, a much larger number than that. And that's exactly why our, our community is up in arms about this. You know, this, this is, wasn't, wasn't one or two houses. We're talking, we're talking well over 20, and I, and I think in actual fact there could well be more than that, yeah. and we haven't unearthed them all yet. So somewhere somebody, somebody has to take some responsibility in why, why has this small town um, in Cumbria suddenly become the target for all these houses to be turned into HMOs for asylum seekers? And is it right that um, your understanding is the houses were actually bought by developers knowing that they could rent them out to asylum seekers? Well, we've been, as a council, proactive and talk where we can identify asylum seekers. We've contacted them directly and put them in the real picture of Art Mellon. Mm. And many of them have turned around to us and said, OK, we get it, we're pulling out of the... We've actually bought one, but we've got six more in legals that we're planning to buy and we're going to pull out of them. So we know, we know from... Some of our developers, that 12 houses they backed out of buying, and we also know that a number of sellers have, have backed out of selling them to developers right. where they've realised who they were selling to. Mm. 
And Dean, let me come back to you. Um, what's your understanding of the sorts of people who would be sent to these homes? Are they families, asylum seeker families, or are they likely to be single men? Are they likely to be strangers sharing houses? How, how do they reckon it's going to break down? Well, that's one thing that we found out. We had a meeting with uh, uh, Millen Town Council, the police, uh, some representatives from uh, Cumberland Council. Yeah. Uh, one, one lady who, who appeared and uh, she, she said she didn't know who was actually coming into them, but then uh, via video link, Cumberland Council come on and first thing they said, what, so when the asylum seekers come here, so it was like, hang on a minute, you've just said you didn't know on one hand and on the other hand you've said asylum seekers. Yeah. And as the uh, meeting went on, it was, um, you know, it was said that they're, they're probably mostly single men, um, but the main issue that the community has got up, up in arms is where they're situated. They're situated in between two 85-year-old residents across from schools. Right. The, 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 no one's consulted with, with the uh, community, right. which has caused a hell of a lot of uh, frustration. And these would likely be temporary residents as well, wouldn't they? Because if they're asylum seekers, they're presumably being housed there while their um, application's going through. So they might not yeah, even well, be there that long. Yeah. These are the questions that we asked. I mean, you've got to take consideration for, for the asylum seekers that are coming here. There's nothing to do with Millen as it is. Hmm. We're rural, it was secluded. And then we asked the council what was going to happen, you know, when the asylum uh, when when the asylum was done, they said they'd have to leave, but where are they going to go? Yeah, right. Nobody knows. They, they, from Circo's point of view, they're actually getting £750 a head and three and a half grand per room for these people, yeah. and money's talking. They're not even taking our, our community into consideration. Right. No, it's an incredible state of affairs. And, Jed, let me ask you just about the town a little bit. I mean, if people were to move in there, I mean, I know that there's different opinions about whether asylum seekers can work and what sort of work they can do. But what sort of a, a community is it? What sort of people do uh, for work there? What, what, sort of, what sort of community is it? Is it? Millam, Millam is, is a great little friendly community where people look after each other. Um, I've been a resident now in, in Millam for over 20 years. It's, it's not the town of my birth, but I, I wouldn't live anywhere else now. Um, and I'm really proud to live in Millam. I've seen the way this community came together to support uh, the initial um, migrants coming out of U the Ukraine crisis, yeah. you know, where people don't their, open up their host homes for them. But this is unplanned, it's unconsulted, and it's it's not as if we're, we're looking to house two or three families in Mellon. We're talking HMOs, which are single rooms yeah. in houses of multiple occupancy. And, and the numbers are just vast, mm. you know, we understand that the government are trying to disperse them across the country and that not just the South should take the brunt of all these um, asylum seekers coming into the country. We get all that, but it needs to be appropriate for the community that you're sending them to. Yeah, absolutely. And, right. and, they, and they, there should be some consultation. And then there's, there's, there's making sure that the, all the support is there if, if they do send them into communities, that the support there to, to make sure these people get the wraparound care, get the English lessons, get all the things they need so, so, so that they can develop into, uh, into good citizens, really. Yeah. And that's another thing, uh, Jed, I wanted to um, uh, ask you. Sorry, Dean, let me come back to you. I mean, there is no GP surgery there, we understand. I mean, what we do Yeah, know... there is a GP surgery, and it, it is a good surgery, but right. it's under pressure like anywhere else. Uh -huh. We've got no dentist. Um, the transport system's... 
it is poor, buses yeah. and trains. Yeah. You know, we're isolated. Um, we actually, you know, we've been working well with Millen Council and and everybody else in the area, and we've actually done a survey, and there's 112 people that actually need housing in Millen. Right. And these houses are getting snapped up cheaply by investors before anybody can even get the foot on the housing ladder from youngins right up. Right. There's people living in squalor, we found it's it's disgusting. Yeah, it is awful. But that's co copied all over the country. I mean, you know, you're you're in a particularly bad situation here with the Home Office, but you can bet your bottom dollar that there's lots of other communities in a similar place who might not just know yet because they haven't been smart enough as you have been to find out. And what's the situation currently with the Home Office, Dean, as far as you know? We're told that they might have sort of paused what it is that they want to yeah. do. But <clears throat> what's your understanding of the time frame? Yeah, well... We've actually been working well with our MP, Trudy uh, Harrison, yeah. and she managed to put the pause on with the Home Office, who've told us that no asylum seekers will be moving until we've had consultation and they've actually addressed uh, the situation. But mm. as you, the emails that have been going around, going back from last year, they've stated that this isn't a fit area for, for asylum seekers. So, yeah. so hopefully... Hopefully they'll be put off because I know that there have been other cases around the country where um, they have just kind of literally given up. But they're spending a fortune on all of this as well. And Jed, that's the other thing that we don't ever get any consultation on. I'm sure your community, like many communities, could do quite well with the amount of money they're about to spend on something like this uh, to improve the place as it is. You know, why not do that with the money instead of giving it all to people who are only going to be there temporarily anyway? Well, you know, it, it is go go back to the policy, and, and I understand the policy that, that this is this is where the government are sending money out, so, so that where councils are having to take their share of the brunt of, of these migrants, so there is money then to, to provide provide the services and provide everything else that's required of them. So I I get that, um, it's it's but it needs to be appropriate for for the for the for the community that you're talking about you know and, and you can you can if you go into big cities they're anonymous you know you can put a put a number of um asylum seekers into a big city nobody will notice you you put them into Millen. everybody knows each other in Millen. yeah you, there's no there's nobody that's anonymous you know everybody will know with every new face that arrives in the town very quickly so um it, it, it's it's the appropriateness really of this um you know we've got our own problems we've got our own housing crises that you know whether it's social housing where it whether it's a shortage of private rented accommodation yeah. we already have those we're a we're a remote small town we're probably the most remote small town in england yes. you know our, our two service towns are whitehaven and barrow are at least 40 minutes drive away right so it's 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 why why our locality is picked for this sort of number just doesn't make sense. Mm. And I mean that would be interesting, wouldn't it, to find out how you were selected because it would be fascinating. Yeah, I mean to that, see that, that, Britain, is, that is as, where as we as a council. Uh, you know that that's to, to us as a council the important thing. You know, we Dean's talked about the advice that was given to Sort Circle, and you've talked about it. Yet yeah, that that seems to have been ignored. Um, and we've managed, as I say, to talk to a number of developers and, and the developers are telling us, well, we get the postcodes from Serco. They tell us where to go and find houses right. and we can, we, we can only do what, what we're asked to do um, to, to go and find these houses. And, and 
you know, I said, but when, when does somebody say stop? He says, well, we just keep going till Circo tell us to stop and say they've got enough houses. Yeah. And they're making, Mike, they're making a couple something? of billion yeah, pounds a year, it yeah. seems to me. Um, let me. Let me finish up with you, Dean. I mean, um, what are you hoping will be the next stage then? Are you hoping that they'll just drop the idea altogether? Well, going back to what you said before, how we were selected, we actually found out how we were selected during the meeting and the police were there. Uh, the two uh, Cumberland council councillors said that they'd actually consulted with the police and it right. was over a postcode of LA14. And the only reason they picked our area is because there was no hate crime in our in our area. That was why they picked it. Oh, really? So, yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. Our, our stance is... we. Our, our town isn't ready to take this on. We're mm. under strain. It is. Shops are shutting down. Our our amenities are really, really poor. And we, we really need to start looking after our own yeah. and start putting money into the area. Shops, like say, shops, the street in Wellington Street is shutting down mm. rapidly. And with housing asylum seekers, it's going to give nothing to the community at all no. to get it back on its feet where it needs to be. No. Exactly right. Absolutely. Well, listen, thank you both for talking to me. Dean Myers, Community Action Group at Millam and the Chair of Millam Council, Jed McGrath. We wish you luck and do keep in touch with us because we'd like to see uh, where this story actually goes. Um, you can get more on this story as well on Talk Today's Breakfast Show tomorrow morning. Our correspondent Nick Ellaby will be live from the town of Millam in Cumbria ahead of a crisis meeting. But I'll tell you what, we have to talk about asylum seekers as well, in a, as a general rule, because we've seen all sorts of cases of asylum seekers going wrong, asylum seekers being allowed into this country, not deported despite committing criminal acts. We've got a story for you tonight, uh, which is absolutely incredible. A 28-year-old from Iraq who came here illegally by the name of Arez Ali. Now, he has just been jailed, but he still cannot be deported, even though his asylum claim has been denied. But he was caught back in March the 20th, 2022, with 13 wraps of crack cocaine and £600 in cash when police raided a house in central Middlesbrough where he was living. Um, his partner is also a drug dealer, it turns out. He was also caught fleeing the police while driving without insurance on the A66 at 100 miles an hour. He was charged with driving whilst disqualified. He was also charged with breaching a suspended sentence order. But the fact is that this guy is a danger to society. He's been locked up more than once. He's applied for asylum. He's come here illegally. He still hasn't been deported. And no doubt when he comes out of prison in about a year's time, when he served half of the sentence that he was sent down for, he'll go back to drug dealing. He'll go back to driving uninsured cars at 100 miles an hour on roads which could lead to the deaths of ordinary people who are driving with their families. And this, I'm afraid, is the legacy of what this government is bringing into this country because it may not be the fault of individual asylum seekers who wish to come here and claim asylum, but it's certainly the fault of the government to allow people to come here, like this character, Azir Arez Ali, who is a criminal, he's from Iraq, and he's committed crime in this country, and he shouldn't be here, and he should be kicked out. It's unbelievable. We'll bring you more on his story as, of course, time passes over the course of the next couple of months, because this, ladies and gentlemen, is an absolute travesty and it's a disgrace. But moving on, Boris Johnson and Tucker Carlson have sensationally scrapped a highly anticipated debate after a bit of a falling out. The two were scheduled to meet for an interview on Tucker's own channel with Boris set to pocket £1 million, which he claims would be donated to Ukraine. But now the former Prime Minister has accused Carlson of acting as a tool for the Kremlin. 
The US broadcaster's interview uh, with Russian President Vladimir Putin was watched by millions and millions of people. So what's this actually all about? A man who has his ears to the ground in Westminster is a spectator's political correspondent, Mr James Hill, and he joins me now. James, a very good evening to you. Thanks very much indeed for uh, taking the time to talk to us. I mean, this sounds to me uh, like it could be a number of different scenarios, right? So Tucker Carlson reaches out to Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson says, give me a million quid and I'll do the interview. Um, people who know Boris Johnson might say he might have wanted it for some new wallpaper or perhaps uh, to do up the new house up in Oxfordshire. Um, he's now claiming that he was asking for the money uh, to give to a donation uh, to a charitable organisation in Ukraine. What's it all about? Uh, the, future, the answer is, is that it's about the future of the right uh, within the transatlantic context here, which is that on the right in America, there's very much more a debate around, you know, is Ukraine being used as a way to exploit American um, alliance to the Western community or in, Amer in Britain, where it's much more about, you know, is that money being used to sort of keep up the Western alliance against Russia and their aggression forces? So really, it's about Boris Johnson's legacy and also about how the conservative forces uh, across the Western world ought to stand. And in this election year, in 2024, when, you know, you have the debate about Ukraine being a real issue in America, 60 billion of aid being held up in the House of Representatives right now, uh, in a way in which it's not really an issue so much in here in the UK, where Keir Starmer is very keen to present himself as about, about an ally of Ukraine. It's very much more an issue about uh, left versus right uh, in America, whereas it isn't so much here. So it's more about, uh, you know, different ways in which conservatism is going apart in DC versus here in London. And is it also about how, despite the two uh, having a common language, as Oscar Wilde said, there's a great deal of misunderstanding from the American perspective about yes. British people and probably similarly back the other way because the American right doesn't really have a figure anything like Boris Johnson you know a libertarian who likes um, free trade but also likes free movement of people who doesn't wish to have yes. borders really wants to bring in as many people as possible and he's as green as you can get net zero is his friend I mean I can't think of any Republicans who would fit that mould Yes, Mike. I, I mean, I completely agree. I think that with a lot of American right figures, it's very much more a checklist. Yeah. And it's much more, I can think of X, Y, Z. You know, if you think of a person who was challenging for the Republican nomination, yeah. you think of people who are like, uh, you know, the uh, Southern governor, uh, Ron DeSantis, you could probably guess what they all were. Yeah. And in a way, Mike, that was what was his downfall, was that you could guess what uh, Ron DeSantis thought about everything. Whereas... Uh, in a way, Trump was unique because he was someone who would challenge those kind of vested interests. And similar with Boris Johnson is that, yes, he would say politically incorrect things about yeah, different groups in society, yeah. but also he was someone who signed up to the net zero agenda, who was fully behind COP26, yeah. who was someone who would be a strong ally of Ukraine. And that's what's really different about him here. And so I think perhaps in some ways that kind of willingness to go against orthodox opinions is what is being denied the American right at the current time. Right. Also, Tucker Carlson is an interesting character, isn't he? Because he's kind of split the American right as well. Because there are those who think that he has done himself no favours by going to interview Vladimir Putin and getting very little out of him apart from a history lesson um, and a bit of propaganda um, and millions and millions of views. But, but there's many on the, say, Trumpian side of uh, the Republican right who have kind of disowned Tucker Carlson as a result. Absolutely. And I think that's because they saw him going there as something that was beneficial to Vladimir Putin rather than actually trying to help the kind of cause of the American right here. Uh, obviously, the American right has traditionally taken quite a nationalistic view of all these things, which is that America first. 
And by doing this interview, the way that he did it with a two hour long sit down, that interview was perceived as being overtly helpful to uh, Vladimir Putin. Yes. Uh, and one in which a lot of the points, the fair points about Putin's regime uh, have not landed well. And also, of course, Mike, I mean, just a week before the death of uh, Navalny, which yeah. has obviously had this huge shockwave through a lot of the uh, worldwide um, press here. And so I think that's what's really been so striking is that I think Tucker Carlson's misreading of this and also the timing as well. And that's why these two big egos, the great big, big, you know, albino blonde bombshell of Boris Johnson has come up against Tucker Carlson, who's probably in America the most formidable newsreader and presenter they have today. Do you think there's any possibility that Boris was just sort of hanging one out there, if you like, and just going, I'll tell you what, think of a number. Uh, Give me a million quid and I'll do the interview. <laughs> and then it all went sort of horribly spiralling out of control. <laughs> I mean, that's not like Boris Johnson, is it, to get the numbers <laughs> get horribly out of control? Uh, God forbid. Uh, look, I think, I think genuinely, Boris, I think people misread this. And I think that, you know, I, I saw a lot of criticism when Boris came out last month and effectively backed Trump. And I, I think that misunderstands it, right, which is that, you know, Boris genuinely wants to support Ukraine. And rightly or wrongly... He is doing that in a way which he's trying to flatter Trump's ego, handling to that ego in a way in which he's saying, you know, look, Donald has to back Ukraine. Uh, that's the right thing. Donald's always back the sort of way of virtuousness, et cetera. And, and that's what he's trying to do here. He's trying to suck up to Trump in a way in which he's trying to ingratiate himself. And so I think that when he says that, you know, Donald Trump ought to back uh, you know, uh, Zelensky's struggle. That's really what it's all about here. And so I think that Tucker Carlson has a different reading of the American right than what Boris Johnson does here. And I'll be interested with Liz Trust tomorrow going to CPAC, whether other British Americans, uh, you know, British conservatives will pick that up and try and make that case with the Americans when they talk to them like Liz Trust is going to do tomorrow. Yes. And Liz Trust, I suppose, is someone they can identify with because she's much more aligned with their kind of right-wing agenda, isn't she? You know, she is a bit more kind of pure when it comes to things like free trade, but closed borders. To an extent, I think the right in both countries is going through a bit of a struggle right now, which is that on the one hand, it's our country first, it's Britain first, it's America first in different contexts, but also it's about these kind of broad principles. And so everyone's really kind of, you know, struggle with that right now. And I think that Liz Truss will go out there and she'll say, I will stop by establishment. I think... You know, she will say things about, you know, the democracy, the will of the people was frustrated by what I went through. And there'll be a certain audience for that. But equally, what Liz Truss is quite interesting with is that she was very much more a supporter of Ukraine than a lot of the American right is right now. So it's about the key thing about saying, how does Ukraine struggle relate to us as a people? Uh, and that will be the interesting argument I'll be looking forward to see tomorrow when she and others like Boris Johnson, the press, have been making, which is the case about... You know, can Ukraine be an ally of Britain and uh, America as well? Yeah, absolutely. And just one final thing on Vladimir Putin. I mean, uh, Tucker Carlson did ask him about Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, who works for the same organisation that, that, that I do here. Um, he's been detained yet again, remains in a Moscow prison, and is probably going to be there for another year by the, by the looks of things. So, I mean, whether Tucker Carlson did any good there, I'm not quite sure. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, th I think we all need to remember as journalists of different you know, perspectives is that the way in which it's treated there is is pretty chilling. And I, I will be interested to see whether that treatment of people involve the political or media struggle uh, gets worse or better as that Russian presidential election 
uh, gets closer. And uh, it's a grim irony. I, 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 I suspect that of all the many elections that are happening across the world this year, in Europe, America, elsewhere, India, for instance, uh, I think that the uh, Russian election is probably a foregone conclusion. And uh, we just wait to see. Uh, Evan Gershwin hopefully will uh, have some kind of resolution there. Um, and I think that's something to bear in mind when it comes to everyone dealing with uh, Putin and Putin's Moscow. Absolutely. James, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. James Hill from The Spectator there uh, on the rather curious relationship between Tucker Carlson and Boris Johnson. We shall see. I wonder if Boris charges a million for every interview that he gives. Unlikely, I would have thought. Moving swiftly on, though, when I heard the words JO529-4351, I thought, jolly good, Elon Musk just named another one of his children. Only to discover that JO529, whatever the heck it's called, is actually the name of a fastest-growing supermassive black hole discovered by Aussie scientists to date. And they're calling it the jab of the hut of a black hole because it's got an enormous appetite. And it will keep growing because it gobbles up mass the size of the sun every single day. It's so big, Sadiq Khan might find a way to tax it to fill the black holes in TfL's funding. For perspective, that's the size of 70 million trillion London double-decker buses laid out together. 50 billion football pitches or 90 million Bibi barges all at once. And I just made all of that up, actually, because people love to throw these metrics around for comparison. All you need to know is this thing is blooming massive. And scientists say it's been staring us right in the face. A bit like Putin's plan to invade Ukraine, but we were a bit slow in catching that. And this black hole is currently in contention with Vladimir Putin to see who will end life on Earth first. So just when you thought life on Earth was hell, the cosmos has even bigger and worse plans for you. But to see who I'll be backing, I'll need to get the black hole stance on fish and chips, because only today, Putin banned British trawlers from scooping Russian's cod from the Bering Sea. Well, at least this black hole's not driving up prices at my local chippy. Do with that what you will, folks. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. After the break, a cheeky bid to scrap VAT on loo roll. You won't believe how much money it makes. And Just Stop Oil want your vote this upcoming election. The madness. Do not go anywhere. Welcome back. Tributes have flooded social media following the death of British actor and comedian Ewan McIntosh. McIntosh died aged just 50 and was best known for starring as Keith Bishop in the sitcom The Office. His death was announced by his management this morning, who said he passed away peacefully. Ricky Gervais, The Office's creator, paid tribute to Mr McIntosh, describing him as very funny and an absolute original. Now, talk about cheeky turns. We are paying, having to pay VAT on loo rolls. That thing we use every day because the government considers it apparently a luxury item. The problem I have is items like caviar and helicopters dodge the charge as they're apparently deemed as essentials. A public petition has been launched calling on the government to scrap the VAT, but that seems unlikely because the UK spends around £26 million on toilet paper every single week, with each household using 127 rolls annually. And you know what? The VAT on this brings in £247 million to the Exchequer, which is quite a bum deal. I don't think... Yeah, I don't think they're going to be giving up any of that sort of money. We've got the glorious panel back with me. Telegraph journalist Steve Edgerton is here. Political commentator Candice Holdsworth. Ledger of Spikes online. Tom Slater. Imagine that, £127 million in VAT. That's extraordinary, isn't it? 
No, it's easy. You can one, you, it's no mystery why they don't want to give that up. No. <laughs> the VAT still remains an odd one, doesn't it? I mean, the fact that you don't have to pay a VAT in a helicopter, mm -hmm. but you do have to pay it um, on certain foods and on certain restaurant deals and on certain, you know, just... It's one of those taxes that really impacts kind of poorer people, yeah. really everyday does. people. It does. And also small businesses collect VAT, but then pass it on to the government. So for them, it's an accountancy thing. So all you do is you charge people VAT, mm -hmm. uh, you collect it, and then you give it back to the government, mm. and you don't actually see any benefit from it. Yeah. And it's a massive... It's just... All it, all it is is all like, it's almost like a vulture tax. You know, if you generate money and you charge VAT, they just take it all. Yeah. For nothing. Yeah. Pretty Milking awful. Milking people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, let's have a look at this. How about this from the leader uh, of the free world? Joe Biden's daily routine has been published, and it looks something like this. 7am, bleary-eyed and with a sleep apnea machine strapped to his face, Joe Biden wakes up most mornings when his cat, Willow, crawls across him. An hour later at 8am, he begins his 45-minute mobility workout with his slip-proof shoes on so he doesn't fall over. Then, he doesn't begin his working day until 10am, apparently, when I'm sure all the important presidential work commences. And then the president's official working day ends at 5 when the White House calls a lid for the press, meaning the president has no more public events. And after reading briefing notes in the evening, he's all tucked up in bed by 11pm. I'm not sure about that, you know, because uh, when you look at Joe Biden, he looks like he's a man that likes a nap. <laughs> he looks like a guy that doesn't do more than a couple of hours of any kind of work before he goes for a lie down. Well, Trump famously called him Sleepy Joe. Which yeah, I think is quite sleepy, a, quite creepy, Beijing <laughs> Biden. But he's 81. I mean, you're going to be taking strain at that age. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if Trump gets elected, he'll be, what, 78? He'll be 78. Although I mean, some have said he's a younger 78. He's a much younger 78. I mean, you see Trump even now when he's you know, campaigning or he's going backwards and forwards to various courthouses where he's being arraigned for something or other. <laughs> you know, he gets off his plane at 3 o'clock in the morning and dances down the steps and gets in his car and goes home. You know, and he's one of those Thatcher-esque types, I think, who doesn't yes. need very much sleep. Yeah. He's, he, you know, they used to say he was up at 3am tweeting when he was in the White House. And so I just think the thing with Biden is he just doesn't look like a guy who is constantly alert, does he? No, he's taking strain, that's obvious. Huge, huge, huge physical strain. Yeah. I mean, some people say it's dementia. I don't know if it's that, but I just think the schedule's way too punishing yeah. for him. And, I mean, it must be difficult. If he has a working day that they structure around that time frame, so he works from 10 till 5, you know, that's pretty bad news if Russia decides to invade Poland at sort of, you know, 20 <laughs> to 7, isn't it? Do you have to wake him up? Well, what do you do? Well, he's always on holiday as well. I yeah, think. he's away a lot, isn't it? Something about 20% of his time in, in the White House has been on holiday or on vacation. Yeah. And as you say, quite rightly, there are some really serious issues that come with this. And right. I think the people around him, they must be aware that he really is ageing and kind yeah. of his... Perhaps his... his I've always, his one, I've always, always thought it must be one of the worst jobs in the world, um, you know, to be very high up in any kind of government because you can never really rest. I you think... go to sleep at 11 o'clock at night, you can be woken at 2 in the morning, you know, you can't really get drunk because, you know, then you'd be in charge of some kind of horrible nuclear bomb and you might be feeling a bit grumpy. You know what I mean? It's they like... visibly age. I mean, yeah, yeah. Do you remember Obama went grey overnight? Yeah. He was, what, Tony like Blair 42 well. or something? And even Joe Biden came into this, shall we say, of quite an advanced vintage, and even then he looks like he's really at death's door at this point. What's always concerning is you think this has always been a bit of a Potemkin presidency because yes. he's never really been on his sharpest form. Mm. It's going to be really interesting going into the election because remember last time around, because of COVID, he could do it all on Zoom. Yes, he could. <laughs> from his basement. And he, from his, and he was hiding, as Trump said, in his basement. He didn't ever come out. Absolutely. But this yeah. is the thing. He's, the debate's come. That will, right. He'll be well, found he's, out. He's now before. running again and we're supposed to believe that he's going to, he's going to have a full term for another four years. Right. It's like... 
well, obviously that's not going to happen. Well, even more ridiculously, I was listening to someone the other day who said if Trump actually won the election, Biden could stand the next time around, which mm. would be, you know, five years hence. Using the Ouija oh, board or something. Yeah. come on, like, get real. Like... Yeah, find somebody else, whatever you do. And who? I mean, people <laughs> have been talking about Michelle Obama. I mean, is that actually a realistic I can't option? see that happening. Go, I mean... go for someone younger, try and convince George Washington to run. Yeah, I mean, someone was, somebody was telling me that, um, um, that... I can't remember what the longest-serving prime minister was of recent times when he resigned from his office. Uh, he was still younger than both Trump and Biden. Mm. <laughs> you know, unbelievable stuff. Mm. Let's talk about Boris Johnson. Um, mm. We were mentioning uh, to our friends at The Spectator there that there's been this inter interaction between Boris Johnson and Tucker Carlson. Um, Boris asking for a million quid. What you, what's your take on that? I think Boris is being pretty cheeky there. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's, made he's definitely a... asking for himself, isn't he? Oh, I think so. He's making a lot of pops at P Tucker Carlson over the last few months of right. his position on Ukraine. Yeah. And if Boris had any kind of guts, he would go and speak to Tucker on his show and he'd, and he'd answer his questions. Yeah. And I think it's quite easy for Boris to say, oh, I want a million dollars to yeah. go to some charity in Ukraine. He's right. obviously trying to avoid the issue completely. Right. I think so, because he's hoping that Tucker Carlson won't come up with a million quid. I mean, if Elon Musk suddenly goes, here's a million quid, go and get Boris Johnson, uh, he might find some other reason not to do it. Mm, I wonder. You know, yeah, he said it was a member of his team said that. Yeah. I mean, it would be a it would be a very good debate. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't think Boris Johnson would want to do that because he wouldn't want to answer certain questions. Yeah. No way. I mean, I don't know whether Tucker Carlson's going to become famous for the way he interviews people after what he did with Putin because I mean, there were a lot of things that people were critical of there, quite rightly. Mm -hmm. But he didn't ask him some very tough questions yeah. that you could have asked him. Mm -hmm. Whereas, is he going to treat other people more, uh, you know, more harshly? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's it, isn't it? I mean, obviously, when you're interviewing a dictator, for all intents and purposes, in their, in their country, country yeah. you're going to tread a little bit more carefully yes. than you would if you're having a ding-dong with Boris Johnson. But at the same time, this is kind of his style. He'll often have some quite out-there people and he'll just sort of look slightly credulously at them and pull yeah. faces, whilst they often say some quite... Mad things. Mm. So maybe yeah. it is his style, doesn't it? Yeah, maybe it is. Let's talk about. I don't know whether you were able to watch it earlier on. We were talking to some people up in Milham um, about this idea that the Home Office wants to move in 40 migrants, they say, it could be more than that, uh, into what is a very small town in the, the north of England, which doesn't have any facilities, which doesn't really have any economy to speak of, and doesn't even get the honour of being asked if they want it. Well, this is not a new thing. This has been happening for a while. Mm -hmm. I think that there were they moved Syrian refugees into this tiny yes. little town where they felt completely isolated. They were cut off from people that they could maybe speak the same language as yeah. them. They said people were actually tried to help them, but it was a completely alienating experience. No. And you just wonder, what is the thinking Well, it's not good there? for anybody, is it? No. And it's if totally this is the answer to get them out of hotels, it's not the answer. It's totally intimidating, I yeah. think, for the people who live in the town, particularly mm -hmm. if you're elderly and so on. And, you, and these are all young men. Yeah. These are all kind of all of they that same bracket. Apparently it's, it's, it's sort of single occupancy rooms in a shared house. Mm -hmm. plan. Imagine if you're an old lady and you've grown up in that town all your, all your life yeah. and you basically know everyone and it's all kind of quite, quite a nice, friendly atmosphere and suddenly you've got all of these men who don't speak English properly right. and so on, coming into your town. And they were probably transient because they're supposed to be asylum seekers who are awaiting confirmation or, or, or rejection mm. of their claim. Well, do we know who these people are? Well, they, no. might, they may have thrown away their passports into, right. the, into the channel. Lots of them do right. that. What kind of vetting has been done on these people? Yeah. We, we know that asylum seekers, some of these people are criminals. They've yeah. been committing terrible criminal acts. Look at the guy recently yeah. who was, did the acid attack. The acid attack. A guy tonight who's in prison up in the northeast of England who's a drug dealer, effectively, um, and has been done multiple times for selling drugs and driving without insurance and all the rest of it. He's now back in prison. 
hasn't been accepted for asylum, um, but still hasn't been deported. And it's so unprecedented, isn't it? Because people who live in these little towns across England, they may have been there for, for generations and generations, maybe a thousand years even, their, their history could go back. And suddenly these towns are being occupied by people yeah. from different cultures, but different backgrounds. It's, it's almost like this is being designed to generate a backlash because of the fact that disproportionately, it's not just small towns that this right. is affecting. It's often very impoverished towns. You saw yes. what happened in Nosley, Merseyside. Yeah. It's one of the most deprived local authorities in the country. Um, a lot of the time where the migrant bar shows and up that's or because, where this and, that, and then they go there because they pay money to go there, don't yeah. they? Yes. So they get accepted. And of course, in a, in especially in the middle of the cost of living crisis and all the rest of it, this is going to generate problems. Yeah. Um, and yet it's almost because of the fact that they can just kind of put them out of the way where they right. think no one will notice, that you're not going to have a backlash. Of course you are, right. particularly at a time when resources are so strained and they're seeing so many of them given over yeah. to people. And they've, I mean, had no, they've not even been consulted about yeah. this stuff. Funny that enough, something similar happened in the 90s to a lot of seaside towns in the south of England because what they did was they realised that they had no council tax uh, money coming in because an awful lot of the houses were dilapidated and empty and, and so they thought, here's an idea, we'll tell people who live in the north of England who happen to be on the dole to come and live here and then the government will pay their council tax. And it was a great wheeze. Hastings was one of the pieces, places that did it uh, with great success. But they basically turned a large part of the town into a kind of a, a very run-down area because everybody was unemployed but it gave them money from central government. And yeah, they're saying that's happened to places like Blackpool as well. Yeah. And I think that's something like 25% um, of the population is on out-of-work benefits. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what happens, and it becomes this vortex. Right. And then people don't want to move there, and then people who have aspiration move want out. Move out, yeah. And then it never improves. And it becomes a dead zone, like yeah. a ghetto, which is what they have in America, and it's a really bad situation. Yeah. We've got lots of other things to talk about. We've got some of the papers to look up as well. Uh, you're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up next, net zero is going to cost you more than you think. What a surprise. Plus, we'll bring you all those stories from tomorrow's papers. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. The World of Woke. Now, if they were honest, they would just admit it. They would admit that all this talk of net zero is based on all sorts of things that we really don't need to know about. You know, the kind of details the little people are too stupid to understand. Best to treat them like mushrooms, kept in the dark and only ever given a diet of complete and utter manure. Well, finally, the tide may be turning. As Rishi Sunak and his government try to move away from the mad dash to net zero and a greener economy, the people who are charged with figuring out how much it all costs are starting to get worried. And when they get worried, they start telling the truth. This week at the House of Lords Economics Affairs Committee, it seems that the worm may have turned. Olivier Blanchard, the former chief economist at the International Monetary Fund, appeared before them and admitted there was a, in his words, substantial fiscal cost to achieve anything close to net zero and that it will be much more expensive than people imagine. Of course, I've been saying this for years. Whenever I'm told that people actually want to transition to net zero because all the polls say they do, I say, well, that depends on what the question is. If you ask people if they want to save the planet by moving to a net zero carbon economy, they all say yes, of course they do. But if you ask them whether they'd be willing to pay more tax in order for it to happen, only the super rich and the middle class millionaire just stop oil types agree. Monsieur Blanchard, who now applies his trade at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington DC, admitted that even he has no idea how much it will actually cost, but he warned it was time to tell the public the truth. The public does not believe, he said, or has not been made to understand that it is going to be costly for them. It is going to be costly and that message has to be sent out. 
In France and Germany, the farmers are already fighting the EU's draconian and destructive environmental regulations and the phasing out of diesel subsidies, and it's beginning to happen here as well. The Office for Budget Responsibility has so far put the cost of the UK reaching net zero by 2050 at £1.4 trillion over three decades. And other experts, like economics professor Dieter Helm, who once advised Boris Johnson, have stated that it's much, much more expensive than people imagine and it will have to be funded by the next generation of taxpayers. So what is the truth exactly? It looks more and more like it will be you and I and all the other taxpayers that fund this crazy endeavour. And yet no one can answer what it's for. Here's a piece of advice. The next time an MP mentions it to you, ask them how much you will be paying towards it and do let me know what they say. That is the world of work. The world of woke. Net zero, eh? Nobody knows how much net zero is going to cost. Nobody knows what it's worth. And nobody knows what it's worth doing, either. But shall we have a look at what's going on? Front pages. King Charles on the front with Rishi Sunak. King's tears. Well wishes have made me cry, he says. Um, is this another Rishi Sunak attempt at uh, popularity? Or is it just the king happened to be popping in this day? Fair enough to Rishi Sunak giving his well wishes to um, to King Charles, yep. and obviously you know Charles has been very moved. It's not very English, I suppose, to be moved, but in this time of you know hardship for him, for I think so. Enough. I think he's allowed. Yeah, I think he's allowed a bit of a tear. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Uh, MPs lose plot in Gaza vote fiasco. We talked about this earlier on. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there'll be ramifications, Candice, tomorrow when everybody wakes up and Lindsay Hoyle tries to hang on to his job. What's I know. your betting on it? I know. The thing is with Lindsay Hoyle, I've always sort of been a bit circumspect around him, yeah. about him after that whole Angela Rayner thing. Yes. I won't repeat what um, she was referred to. Yes. The whole, you know. And he kind of took a really paternalistic attitude to he did. it. You know, and said he was going to haul people in and sort of giving them a, mm. a rap on the yes. knuckles. And then I, I thought... Slightly well, condescending to her. Yes, I, I thought so. As if so. she couldn't look after herself. Yes. She can. I mean, it's up to editors what they want to publish, yeah. not, not the Speaker of the House of Commons. That's exactly right. So, yeah, so for me, I mean, I've never really thought that he's um, that great. No, exactly right. I mean, I've just seen a, um, a, a tweet from Stephen Flynn tonight who's trying to explain mm. what happened today and saying that he will continue to fight uh, for the people who suffer. To which I replied, well, why don't you try fighting for the people who suffer in Scotland? No, exactly. You know, all because those, a lot of them. All those premature deaths, all the drug deaths yeah. become the drug deaths capital of Europe. And meanwhile, they're playing silly buggers in the House of Commons trying yeah. to move the dial on a motion on Gaza, which I'm sure Bibi Netanyahu and the heads of Hamas have been watching with bated oh, yeah. breath as all no this question. has been going through. <laughs> now, I'm going to show you something, which I don't know whether any of you are particularly arachnophobic, but I'm going to show you something that might scare people. If you're watching uh, and you don't like spiders, look away. This is a story um, about the most dangerous dangerous spider apparently in the country. There's a little girl in Hampshire who's been left unable to walk and covered in rashes after being bitten by this thing. Um, it is apparently uh, some kind of um, false widow spider and she's in a terrible state and there's loads of these things apparently up and down the country. I don't know how they get into the house but they apparently came over in a bunch of bananas oh, many really? years ago. Yeah. I'm not afraid of spiders. My husband is slightly arachnophobic. Yeah. So I always have to get rid of spiders. He won't mm. go near them. Like, he will not sleep in a room if the spider's in there. Really? I have to, like, get it in a jar. Right. But I'm brave with spiders here. I would never go near a spider in Australia or South Africa. South Africa is their proper size. I there, would keep they? away, They're yes. sort of bigger than the size of a dinner plate. Yes. I think that would worry most people in yes. this country, wouldn't it? Yeah. Mm. Right, let's talk about um, front page of the Financial Times, the Tower of Fable. You guys are probably too young to remember this when it was a proper kind of exciting thing, when it was brought into London. The post office tower, uh, the GPO tower, I think it was called first, and it was one of the first places in London to have a revolving restaurant. 
which was very, very exciting. I never actually got up it. I think the IRA tried to blow it up. Um, and then they closed it down to all visits. And then it became the BT Tower. It became the BT Tower. Yeah, loads that of adverts. Was, yeah, because that was the move away from, you know, the old GPO, which used to run the phone system, to, um, uh, you know, the post office tower, and then finally the BT Tower. But this is basically a, a luxury hotel uh, buying the property, and they may sort of... Because London doesn't have enough luxury hotels. <laughs> I mean, that's all we seem to have now, isn't it? I just find... Oh, sorry, I find it so amusing, these sort of relics of certain eras and it was their vision of the very future. 70s yeah yeah you know like all the tower blocks yeah and, and it was the like 60s. the thing they did was which was quite extraordinary yeah. at the time was let's put some like satellite dishes on the side of it because <laughs> yeah. that'll look really futuristic <laughs> yeah. you know very the jetsons isn't it it's it is it's very much of that era it is they thought we'd all be yeah you know, where's my flying car is but i mean i suppose the thing is with any tall building people will go up it you know, no matter how ridiculously um, expensive it is, I they'll go... I quite like a revolving <laughs> restaurant. I don't know if you've... Do you know, Egon Rone always said, don't ever eat in a revolving restaurant. He was the top sort of critic of the time because if they're revolving, they're not paying as much attention to the food. It's mm -hmm. too gimmicky. And I don't... I, I think I have eaten in a revolving restaurant. Um, it's quite the American has never thing. been brilliant, yeah. They've got a lot of revolving restaurants. Yeah. In fact, is the, the restaurant... There's a restaurant at the top of the Gherkin is revolving, isn't it? Is that? Oh, possibly. I think I it might know. be. There's one in Munich, I Maybe it was me that was revolving, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite expensive. The anyway. views are amazing. If you've ever eaten at the Shard and you look out, out yes. over London at night, yeah. it's incredible, just the sea Although, of yeah, lights. I took my son up there for, the, for his 18th birthday and I said, you should have just come to the office canteen, yeah. which is just as high up and, and free. Yeah. Or at least a lot cheaper than I paid for this thing. <laughs> Final one here. A couple have won 61 million quid. They thought they'd only won £2.60. What a nice story. I mean, this is, this is what I call old-fashioned journalism. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd love that right now. That would be amazing. Yeah. Can you imagine? But imagine if you thought you'd only won £2.60. <laughs> yeah, oh, what would you spend the money on, Mike? On £61 million. £61 million. I don't know. Actually, let's, let's narrow it down. If you had the £2.60... I'd probably buy a boat or something. Give the rest would you go away. woke? Would you buy a sort of yacht or something? Oh, well, a yacht would be fun because, I mean, sailing is actually a great thing to do. Um... Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not somebody that, that yearns for great riches. You don't but, you need know. 61 million. You've already you, got your millions. Well, I, yeah, but I just don't know what I'd spend it on. I'm too old to, to have too much fun with it, you know. I'd, be, I'd, probably, I'd probably be philanthropic and give it all away. Mm. Oh, yeah. that's nice. Or start a foundation or something like all politicians do and then make even more money. <laughs> I'm doing it for the good of the world. You know, we could do that. Well, listen, thanks, guys. Um, there was a lot going on tonight. It started incredibly quick, the show tonight. We don't know where it's all going to end, but you can be pretty sure that over in Gaza... Uh, and in Jerusalem and in Tel Aviv, they're not really that bothered about what the Speaker is going to do, and they're certainly not bothered about what the Scottish National Party is going to do, and I'm sure people in Scotland are not that bothered about what the Scottish National Party are going to do anyway. But thank you to Stephen, thank you to Candice, thank you to Tom. Uh, that's all from me tonight. You have been watching, of course, The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I will see all of you tomorrow at 8pm. You know it makes sense, only on Talk TV. Have a good night. <laughs>